Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's right. It is the 20th day of December 2023. This is episode, God, I don't know, 836 or 35 of Bitcoin. And I'm going to start today recapping the Elizabeth Warren letter <clears throat> because I think it's important to keep this this thing in mind. It's kind of flying below the radar of uh, mainstream media. It The letter's not being talked about. What's being talked about is DAML the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. And that's the whole thing that Elizabeth Warren is has, has been on about. And she's been trying this three or four times, and now she's come up with this DAML thing. And that's what everybody's talking about. But nobody's really talking about this letter that has been sent, not only to the Blockchain Association, the CEO, Kristen, I can't remember her last name, <clears throat> but it's also come to my attention that another company has received the exact same letter. I do, I, I just saw it in a note on Noster. Um, I do not know the company's name, but they are also in the Bitcoin space, and they received the exact same, what is essentially a demand, a cease and desist, as well as a demand letter. It's the threat is cease and desist that you will not use ex <clears throat> former you know government regulators and military and intelligence officials to quote unquote stymie the Biden administration's absolutely absolute necessity to get all this stuff basically crushed, which they can't do. They can they can make having Bitcoin illegal in the United States. They can make sure that no banks can touch it, I guess. I mean, it seems like very unlikely considering that Larry Fink is a pretty big voice in the space and he seems to want to touch it. That's the BlackRock CEO guy <clears throat> of the Bitcoin ETF, spot ETF fame. In in either event, nobody's really talking about this letter, right? I mean, I, I've already been on, you know, uh, listened to a couple of other, you know, Bitcoin podcasts and nobody's talking about it. Right. So this is the letter that I read to you yesterday. I'm not going to read it again because it's if you want to hear me read the whole letter, first part of the second half of yesterday's show. But I just wanted to start by saying that I really do think that if pressed, that Elizabeth Warren could find out that this was one of the gravest errors that she could make. Now, as we'll see. In some of the some of the boostograms that I got, there's a guy in there that said, nah, she's been doing this shit since 2019. And that was my question yesterday when I was on a walk. I was like, well, has she done this before? What other industries, you know, might she have attacked? But when she's doing this to, and I hate to say it, but the cryptocurrency industry, right? 
the other industries that can be affected by the same type of thing are energy, transportation, uh, the food and drug, you know, agriculture and pharmaceutical industries, all of them, all of them, every single one of them has had regulators from the United States government gone to work for them as the revolving door that, you know, Elizabeth Warren keeps crying about. And I'm not saying, again, I'm going to actually agree with Elizabeth Warren insofar as it is either all or it is nothing, right? Either everybody gets to do this shit in perpetuity, which I think is actually bad, or nobody gets to do it at all. And there needs to be a strict firewall between if you've ever worked as a government regulator, you are not allowed to go work for private industry in anything close to that which resembled what you regulated in the United States federal government. It's either all everybody gets to do it or nobody does. If there's not, well, you guys can do it, but you guys can't. That's bullshit. That's pure hypocrisy. We don't need that kind of stuff. I honestly believe nobody should be allowed to do this, but it has to be nobody. Nobody can do it. And that's never going to happen. So if I take my, you know, naivete and wrap it in a little box and, you know, throw it outside in the trash, what I come up with is that everybody is going to have to be able to do this shit because some industries are just not. And I've mentioned transportation, I've mentioned energy, I've mentioned agriculture, and I've mentioned pharmaceutical. But you know what I forget? The biggest, largest perpetrator of all this shit, of this revolving door policy, is the financial industry. How many United States ex-financial regulators have gone to work for banking institutions, hedge funds, you name it? I can't count. ChatGPT won't tell me, and Google doesn't really like it. However, I was able to get a couple of names, at least, from agriculture and pharmaceutical. And I want to read this. I want to read this note that I wrote yesterday. Let's take a couple of examples of this revolving door policy that Elizabeth Warren just, she just can't stand it. And it's just evil and it's bad and it's gross, especially when it comes to the cryptocurrency industry, but apparently not when it comes to pharmaceuticals and the FDA. Because Dr. Dorian Fink, Dorian Fink held a leadership position at the Food and Drug Administration and he was instrumental in the approval of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. He later joined Moderna as head of translational medicine and early clinical development within the Department of Infectious Disease. But we're not done. Dr. Jaya Goswami, a former medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, moved to Moderna, again Moderna, as director of clinical development in treatments and vaccines for infectious disease right after her tenure at the FDA, where she had oversight over vaccines and biologics clinical departments. Now, but we're still not done. Okay. Oh, well, those are just leadership positions and, and a former medical officer. How about a former chairman? The former FDA chairman, Scott Gottlieb, is now on the board of Pfizer and former FDA commissioner Stephen Hahn joined Moderna. But yeah, you can't allow Bitcoiners to leverage the same tools. It's either all or nothing. There is no second choice. 
It's either all or nothing. Either everybody gets to do this or nobody gets to do this. Still, though, I think that if pressed, Elizabeth Warren might actually have to back off. And what do I mean by pressed? I mean, you know, a a full-throated, concerted effort by the Bitcoin companies that we all know and love, as well as ourselves, to start making phone calls, not to government, not to your state rep, not to your House of Representative person. No, no, no. They're all ineffectual. You know who does have the ear of these people, though? CEO of Exxon. You know, the board of Pfizer, the board of Moderna. I'm telling you, man, if a real press was made where it's just, you know, a whole bunch of phone calls and letters and emails start rolling in to these guys saying, look, you're next. If this shit, if this shit doesn't go the way, if this, if this stuff does not happen for, God forbid, the cryptocurrency industry, then precedent becomes set. And that precedent will, can, and will be used to make sure that you're unable to access the same federal regulators as they move out of government and quote-unquote public service into the private sector. You won't be able to do that shit either. And they're not going to be happy about it. And they actually might pick up their own phone, in which case senators and representatives do answer personally. They don't talk to the lackey. Right, their letters are read directly by the person because it's like, oh shit. Now, will it happen? I don't know. I actually don't think it will. I don't think you know. There's people are trying to figure out ways to put food on their own damn tables. They don't have time to do this kind of shit. I wish we could find the time to do this kind of shit in mass. But I just wanted to make sure that that I hit on this one more time because when she threatens. To pull the plug on the ability for regulators who know how the shit works at the government level intuitively to come over to the private sector and help them figure out a way to navigate that mire, that swamp, that crap. I I just get the feeling that the people that have been depending on this as their business function for decades are not going to just lie down. But I don't, I just don't think they've been pressed enough to say, look, this is, she keeps coming after this. You might actually want to pick up the phone and say, Liz, cool it. I don't know. Anyway, we've got other stuff to talk about now. The new FASB or FASB rule supercharges Bitcoin asset integration in corporate finance. We'll talk about what this rule is. Susie Violet Ward is going to tell us about it from Forbes magazine. That's right. I got one from Forbes. The Financial Accounting Standards Board recently introduced a significant update to the accounting standards for crypto assets like Bitcoin. This update, known as the Accounting Standards Update 2023-08, responds to stakeholder feedbacks and aims to provide more relevant and transparent financial information under the new standard. Companies must measure these assets at fair value each reporting period with changes in fair value recognized in their net income. This marks a significant shift from the previous model where crypto assets were accounted for at a cost cost less impairment 
The new model is intended to better reflect the underlying economies of these assets and an entity's financial position. One of the key benefits of this change is increased transparency. Investors and stakeholders will now have a more accurate picture of the company's financial health when its Bitcoin is measured at fair value. The update also introduces new disclosure requirements, allowing companies to better communicate their holdings performance to investors and stakeholders. However, there are challenges that companies will need to navigate. Accurately determining the fair value of digital assets can be (laughs) complex as they often trade on various exchanges, each with its own market dynamics. And additionally, the ASU has a relatively narrow scope and determining whether certain types of tokens and assets fall within this scope may also present a challenge. The amendments in the ASU apply to all assets that meet specific criteria, such as being an intangible asset as defined by FASB accounting standards codification created on or residing on a distributed ledger and being fungible. Okay. Companies can adopt these changes early, but they must be implemented for fiscal years beginning after after December 15th, 2024, so that's, you know, a year away, including interim protocols within those fiscal years. If a company chooses early adoption, it must be applied at the beginning of the fiscal year, including that interim period. The update could have significant implications for companies like, you guessed it, MicroStrategy, which has faced challenges due to the previous accounting models for Bitcoin. By recognizing increases in fair value, companies with appreciating Bitcoin holdings may find this new standard more favorable. The new FASB ASU 2023-08 accounting standard for Bitcoin is a significant and positive change addressing past difficulties companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy face in reporting their Bitcoin holdings value. This update simplifies the inclusion of Bitcoin on balance sheets, reflecting its true value more accurately. Coupled with the anticipated approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF before January 10th, 2024, this legislative process is set to accelerate Bitcoin's adoption and integration into mainstream finance. So it just means all that to say that if you're a company and you hold Bitcoin on your balance sheet, you can now report not only the losses, because that's what they were, were, actually, that's, that's what was you had to do but you never could report gains, right? So if your value of your Bitcoin treasure trove increased, you couldn't, you could not reflect that on your company's balance sheet. If it decreased, you were required to report that on your balance sheet. So the only thing that investors ever saw was your company's health as it related to the decrease in Bitcoin's price. This rule change, now it can go either way. So as the price of Bitcoin steadily increases, so do the company's values that have it on their balance sheet. That's going to be an important signaling mechanism for investors of those companies to go, oh shit, they actually are sitting on a lot of cash because that's what they're going to see. That's how it's going to reflect. So that's the FASB rule in case you've been wondering about what the hell that thing is. Ledger, as we all know, they keep screwing up. And they keep having to apologize and they keep having to do make goods. And here's the latest one, Cointelegraph Helen Parts. Ledger Crypto Wallet vows to reimburse users after Connect Kit exploit. Hardware cryptocurrency wallet provider Ledger says it will reimburse all affected users in the aftermath of the Ledger Connect Kit exploit. 
Ledger took to Twitter on December the 20th to announce that the firm is aware of roughly $600,000 in assets impacted or stolen from users through blind signing on Ethereum virtual machine decentralized applications. This had nothing to do with Bitcoin. Multiple decentralized applications using Ledger's connector library, including SushiSwap and Revoke.cash, were compromised on December the 14th, 2023, resulting in massive losses by investors. According to the new announcement, Ledger will ensure that affected victims will be made whole and repaid. The firm stated, quote, We commit by any way possible, including gestures of goodwill. (laughs) That's a hell of a way to start this off. We commit by any way possible, including gestures of goodwill to make sure this is done by the end of February, 2024. We are already in contact with many impacted users who, and are actively working through the specifics with them in quote. In addition, Ledger will continue to work with the DAP ecosystem to allow clear signing, but will no longer allow blind signing with Ledger devices. Yeah, like that's going to fix anything. Ledger expects to sunset blind signing with Ledger devices by June of next year. Quote, our commitment is to work with the community and DAP ecosystem to allow clear signing so users can verify all transactions on Ledger devices before signing. This will lead to a new standard to protect users and encourage clear signing across DAPs, the announcement added. Okay, so... What this is telling me is that Ledger as a company, as a corporate culture, is learning as they go with people's money on the line. This is not a company that you want to do business with. I I, I promise you, this is not a company that you want to do business with. They keep screwing up. They keep having to patch holes and they only find the holes after their customers lose money. This is not an operating procedure. This is like a bat out of hell flying around a cave and crashing into walls and shit like that. This is, this is the worst possible way that you can run a company that has anything at all to do with the wealth of the customers that purchase your goods and services. Do not do business with this company. If you have a ledger, you need to get whatever whatever private keys that you've generated with your ledger device you need to generate a new set of keys with a completely different device some people really do like trezor i've never used one i personally use a cold card from coinkite i i as long as it's not ledger you're you're probably far ahead of the curve but i've heard good things about trezor i have nothing but good things to say about cold card Get a new set of private keys. Wait, well, try to figure out when your pain point on transaction fees are low enough that you can transfer all your shit to the new wallet. And please do so. You know, don't, and don't act like it's a damned emergency that you're going to lose everything tomorrow. But I wouldn't sign anything with your ledger at this point. I, I would, the only thing that I would sign, that'd be the last transaction I would ever do and that I ever did with my ledger was to send all the Bitcoin that was held on the private key generated by that device to my cold card. That's, that was it. And that was the last thing I, I used the, I used a brand new ledger ledger once. And that was to use it to get the hell, get my Bitcoin the hell off of that device. Well, actually it was never on the device, but it was on the private keys. And that was my signing device. I just, 
I can't with this company and neither should you. <clears throat> now, moving on to mining. I mentioned a couple of things about Braid Pool in yesterday's show. Shinobi has a good write-up of what Braid Pool is from Bitcoin Magazine. It is a second competitor in decentralizing mining. Yesterday, the Human Rights Foundation announced a wave of new grants for a diverse range of projects, and I want to focus on one specific project and grant, Braid Pool. And the grant, Kupreet Singh received to continue his work on actually implementing it. The last few weeks have been dominated by discussions about Ocean's recent launch and their decision to filter inscriptions and other transaction types that they deem to be spam. The conversation around their transaction filtering has entirely dominated the discussion, completely eclipsing the subject of improving the decentralization of the mining ecosystem. And Braidpool can hopefully be a conversational reset on this topic. While Ocean is a centralized mining pool that aims to decentralize parts of its operation, namely block template construction and mining payouts, Braidpool is a fully decentralized mining pool protocol. No aspect of the pool is left to a centralized entity entity in its design. A mining pool conventionally does three things. They construct the block template that miners mine on. They divvy up the work. And then they custody block reward payout and distribute them to individual miners. Braidpool handles all three of these in a distributed way. In Braidpool, each individual hasher is required to run their own full node and in the process construct their own block templates. To handle tracking who did what work, Braidpool implements its own blockchain of sorts composed of weak blocks. These weak blocks, and we're not talking seven days a week, we're talking about you're very weak. These weak blocks are essentially perfectly valid Bitcoin blocks that members of the braid pool are mining, with the exception that they do not meet the difficulty target requirement of the main network. They meet a lower difficulty target set within the braid pool. These weak blocks take the role of shares in the scheme, allowing individual miners to keep track of who has contributed how much work to the group effort to find a block. Braidpool, like Ocean, aims to handle distribution of mining rewards amongst the miners in a non-custodial way, but they take a very different approach than Ocean does. This aspect of the protocol has evolved quite a lot since my last piece on it, instead of integrating with a lightning hub. To facilitate the atomic payout to miners when a block is found with a Coinbase paying the hub, they have moved to a multi-sig threshold-based model using Frost Multi-Sig. An M, like Mary of Nancy, M of N, Mary of Nancy Schnorr scheme. All of the miners in the pool send the Coinbase reward to a Frost address composed of all the individual miners with a two-thirds signing majority required. And after finding a block, they pre-sign a transaction paying out the individual miners for their contribution. Periodically, the pool takes all past spendable Coinbase outputs, condenses them into one single UTXO, and then updates the tree of transactions that pay out each miner their proportional earnings. <clears throat> one issue with Braidpool is going to be the same problem Ocean initially struggled with, bootstrapping. Unlike Ocean, however, there is no braid pool company to subsidize the initial period of volatile luck and uncertainty in finding a block. And this begs the question, 
who goes first? Any actual braid pool must quickly grow to a sizable enough portion of the network to smooth out the volatility and luck, or those miners that stay with the pool not achieving that growth will simply wind up losing money themselves. Uh, also, given that there are, is no template provider of last resort to fall back on, as Ocean will be once they integrate Stratum V2, miners must run their own nodes. And this requires a seamless and intuitive user experience to not drive miners away from participating in the protocol. As an open source project, as opposed to a company, that user experience can be fine-tuned and optimized over the next year while it is in development. The plan the creators of the protocol have for attempting to bootstrap the pool initially is very simple. Push the risk of mining with a braid pool away from the actual miners and onto the financial market makers. The fact that an output is an off-chain transaction that distributes funds amongst the miners can be assigned to any address opens the door to people buying the right to have such a mining reward output committed to their address. This gives the ability to construct futures, options, and other financial contracts on top of the act of mining. Such instruments give miners participating in braid pool a way to mitigate the variance risk associated with bootstrapping a new pool. Back to Ocean for a second. They have made a very significant contribution to the space in trying to pioneer architectural changes in the mining ecosystem to counteract prevailing centralization pressures. However, it's undeniable that they are not seeing any continued growth. And growth is a necessity for them to truly have an impact on the issues they were founded to address. Hopefully, Braidpool can be an alternative path to addressing these issues without making the contentious decisions that have led to Ocean arguably self-sabotaging its own efforts. Keep your eyes peeled over the next few days for a deeper look at Braidpool on a protocol level. Okay. <clears throat> let's let's kind of think about this a little bit. One of the things, I'm, I'm actually just going to harp, harp on one thing here. And I'm not really harping. It's just that there's something that's that's stuck in my craw right as I read it. And that was this idea of pushing the risk of mining with a braid pool away from miners and onto financial markets, which opens the door to people buying the right to have mining reward output. And now we have what? The ability for the construction of derivatives derivative products, futures, options, and other financial contracts on top of the act of mining. By definition, ladies and gentlemen, this is a set of derivatives. It's a bet. And I don't like bets. I just, I don't really like gambling. I have never really wanted to go to to Las Vegas and, and go hit the craps tables. I'm not built that way. But when I see derivatives, I alarm bells just go off because of the 2008 financial crisis and the CDOs and CDLs and mortgage-backed securities and whatever. Okay, they were all derivatives. You were buying the right to bet, to make a bet on which way something was going to go, right? And it's not that I, it, 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 I'm going to chalk it up that I don't quite understand what Braidpool is trying to do here, other than figuring out a way to get the risk off of the individual miners themselves, which I think is good. 
But for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. We know this from physics, right? Generally speaking, they all even out because nature abhors a vacuum, as Spock would say. In either event, I'm hoping that Braidpool is successful because we do need more decentralization in the mining space. We need other competitors. But I am still just never going to understand why it is that Luke Dash Jr. almost immediately started censoring transactions. I I don't like inscriptions either. I really don't. But I'm not sure. I mean, I would have turned that on maybe six months later. I would have started talking about it after three months. And then like another three months down the line, I would say, okay, you've had time to understand what's going to go on here. But by doing it almost immediately, Ocean has no growth in the pool. And that's not a good thing. I think that I, I personally think that they jumped the gun on that entire thing. Now over to the regulatory landscape, we have Turner Wright coming at us from Cointelegraph with this one. The head of South Korea's financial regulation is going to discuss crypto with none other than Gary Gensler, according to a report. Lee Bak-hyun, head of South Korea's Financial Supervisory Service, reportedly plans to meet with Gary Gensler from the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States. And according to a December 18th report in South Korean news outlet, no way I can pronounce it, Lee will visit the SEC in January and plans to arrange a meeting with Gensler. The FSS head reportedly plans to discuss the crypto market status in the direction of supervisory policy affecting the space. Cointelegraph reached out to the SEC, but of course they didn't say shit. Quote, regulatory cooperation between countries is important for borderless virtual assets, said an unnamed South Korean government official. The meeting will come at a critical time for both governments' financial regulators. Many experts have speculated that the SEC could approve multiple spot Bitcoin exchange traded products in January. The FSS was also set to implement policies in July of 2024 regarding crypto investors depositing funds onto exchanges and how firms handle those transactions. Both the United States and South Korea are also at odds over the extradition of South Korean National and Terraform Labs co-founder Du Quan. And then they go into more Du Quan stuff. But under Gensler, the SEC has received criticism from many in and outside the crypto industry for its seeming reluctance to decide upon a spot crypto exchange traded fund. The commission has multiple applications on their desk. Yes, we know that. All right. So South Korea is a pretty big market and it's a very large market when it comes to crypto trading. I find it fascinating, however, that this dude is going to fly his happy butt over to Washington, D.C. and sit down with none other than Gary Gensler. You'd think, you'd think that that would be, that he would meet with underlings. But it looks like he's actually going to meet with the man himself. What on earth are they going to discuss? It doesn't matter. The fact that the meeting exists at all is a signal that there's no way, there's no way they stop this. There's no way to stop this. We already knew that. But I think these guys are starting to figure out there's no way we can stop it. We're going to have to sit down and start talking and having very seriously long discussions about what the hell we're going to do. 
And I don't think it's going to include making it illegal everywhere in the world because that's just not going to happen. You'd have to get over 170 different countries on board to do the same thing. Hell, you can't get 40 of them in a room together to discuss anything without an argument breaking out and nothing actually happening. It's, it's kind of over for these guys. Doesn't mean that they won't go down kicking and screaming and they won't do a lot of damage on their way down. But I think that this is my signal that they figured out there's not a damn thing that they can do about it. All right, let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. I got West Texas intermediate was up earlier this morning, but now it's down a fifth of a point to $73 and 77 cents a barrel. Brent North sea is slightly up to $79 and 29 cents. Natural gas is down almost a full point. Gasoline is also down almost a full point. Gold is down eh, yeah, 0.12% $2,049 $2, Silver is up. However, two and a fifth points, Platinum is up 0.89%. Copper is up a third of a point. Palladium, biggest loser today, down over a point. It looks like most of agriculture is in the red today. With some pretty big losses here. Coffee is the biggest loser, 5.29% to the downside. Biggest winner is lumber, up one and a half point. Uh, live cattle, up 0.83%. Lean hogs are down a half. Feeder cattle, up 1.18%. The Dow is up 0.11%. S&P is up 0.09, NASDAQ up 0.12%, and the S&P mini is up a third. Bonds, every single one of them except two, are in the red on their yields, so the yields are starting to decrease even more. The 30-year has gone down to yielding 4.01%, 20-year 4.18%, and the 10-year 3.88%. Wow. And that all that with the with the Federal Reserve not actually budging on interest rates and the market is crying for lower yields on the bonds. That actually is the signal for me, but I'm not exactly sure how to take it yet. The ICE dollar index flashing 102.31 for the United States dollar index. That is actually a gain of 0.14%. Bitcoin chilling out just over $44,000. Uh, average transaction value is 0.55 BTC. The uh, median transaction value is 23 cents, which means that ordinals are in play. Block times are eh, slightly low, nine minutes and 40 seconds. 2.81 BTC taken in fees every single block on average. And 399.42 BTC taken in just in fees over the last 24 hour period. With a 1.21% increase in hash rate, we are at 546 exahashes per second. And your shitcoin indicator, Dogecoin, has shown an increase, which means that everybody is still playing the shitcoin game. 9.3 United States pennies. Dashboard from Clark Moody saying that the market cap for Bitcoin is $863.3 billion. That is, God forbid, 6.3% of gold's entire market cap and now you can get 21.8 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,575,549 and a quarter of, and just a hair under 5,000 
are in the Lightning Network, valued at now $220.5 million, 14,614 nodes that we can see, and 60,748 payment channels that we know about. 79.7% of all that shit's being run over Tor. Let's see what's going on with the mempool, shall we? Oh my God. (laughs) Woo. That's high. Uh, 370 blocks carrying 328,000 unconfirmed transactions waiting to clear the boards at high priority fees of five. Oh my God. 456 Satoshis per V-byte. Low priorities. You're still going to cost you 328 and purging from mempools, everything under 25 Satoshis per V-byte. Holy smokes. I haven't seen it that red in a long time. Now, the hash rate that's being flashed on mempool.space is very different. 457.8 exahashes per second. We'll split the difference and we'll say it's, I don't know, 490 exahashes per second. Now, the boostograms. From Nick underscore dose with 1369 says, cheers. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Pies with 420. Thank you, sir. No, thank you. God's death with 370. Thank you, sir. No, thank you. Uh, Kvart Beerborn with 220 says, one, you may not fund terrorists. Exceptions apply to destabilization of foreign powers, byproducts of deals with oil producing allies, and wildly, widely achievement of geopolitical goals. Two, You may not fund drug dealers. Exceptions apply to national civil unrest control programs, and no shit, and operations under point one. Number three, you may not launder money. Exceptions apply to high net worth individuals and organizations linked to the political apparatus and operations under point one and or two. Extract from USD TNCs. Yeah. I want to go over this one. This uh, You may not fund drug dealers. Exceptions apply to national civil unrest control programs. That's exactly right. We now know that elements of the United States government funded the importation of crack cocaine into the poorest neighborhoods in the largest cities of the United States. Why would they do that? Do I have absolute proof? No. I don't. Nobody does. You'd actually have to get a guy on the stand that was actually the chief of the CIA saying, yeah, we did it, motherfuckers. But that's never going to happen. So we all we have is ancillary evidence. And the evidence is pretty preponderous at this point that, yes, the United States government or elements within it, maybe even unbeknownst to the rest of the government, in fact, probably unbeknownst to the rest of the government, said, yeah, let's 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 screw up this shit and get some civil unrest going. They've been doing that crap since the 90s or late 80s, actually, as crack cocaine came in in like 85 is when it really started taking off. Now it's fentanyl. And I don't know if we have elements that are doing the same shit, but this is sort of harkens back to what I was saying a long time, you know, a while back about the mafia also sowing civil civil distrust because they were walking around shaking people down for money. And it's not like the justice department didn't know who these people were or where they, or where they were and how they were operating. And they could have done shit about it. And they didn't. Why? So fear into the civil, basically using fear to sow civil discord, because if you're distracted by what's going on down the street, you are not looking at the bigger picture. It is just, it's, we've been doing, people have been doing this to each other for, 
hundreds and thousands, you know, at least probably hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, just scaring the piss out of the poor, you know, bastard trying to put food on his table so that the poor bastard doesn't look at how it is that you're screwing him over when it, where it really matters. So, yes, Kvart Beerborn, I totally agree. Chaos Chicken, 200. Warren has the nerve to ask for all of that and cause a scene, but you don't hear her dumbass throwing a tantrum for the revolving door of corporations and the USDA, FDA, CDC, CMS, or FDIC, and their relationships with politicians, lobbyists, or the money used to influence policy. People will applaud this behavior without questioning the others because the false dichotomy of the parties, 100%. Chaos Chicken, 100 sats. Sorry, I typed all that listening before listening to your response to her letter. Shit pisses me off. And finally, again from Chaos Chicken with 100 sats says, went to look up the letter for copy pasta. She's been saying this from at least 2019. So clearly, either no one listens to her or the political theater continues. Yes, and this is what I was talking about at the head of the show. This is Chaos Chicken is the guy that has brought this, you know, basically said, no, no, she's been doing this shit since 2019. And that's, it's interesting that there is confirmation that she has been saying this before. I would be interested in knowing if, like, if there's a targeted industry or if she is just constantly harping on nothing but cryptocurrency. If there's other industries that have been targeted by this or all industries in toto, again, that cannot be making these people very happy. But Chaos Chicken brings up a good point is that it's very possible that nobody listens to her. And I want to lean that direction. And the evidence that I have that it's okay to lean that direction is she has passed zero bills on her own. Anything that that came out of her office no matter who co-sponsored it, zero, zero. She is batting zero percent. The only thing that she can claim fame on that bills that have passed through Congress, got to the president's desk and been signed are all bills that did not come out of her office, but that she did co-sponsor. That's it. None of her own work has actually ever been taken all the way to the president's desk. It's, so maybe she's a non-issue. I don't know. I still think she's fucking dangerous. That's going to do it for the weather report. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. BTC Pay and Strainly publish a case study on the hemp industry. I wonder if it's actually hemp or just full-blown dope, because we got to talk about the dope. Again, Shinobi, Bitcoin Magazine. Strainly, a cannabis seed and services company in partnership with BTC Pay Server, has published a case study on the use of BTC Pay to facilitate payment processing for undeserved and blacklisted industries. No, underserved and blacklisted industries. And one of the most important use cases of Bitcoin is... As many users of a certain privacy wallet would say, to make the transactions they don't want you to make. Censorship resistance, financial institutions, and indirectly governments through the coercive influence that they exert over those institutions hold a large degree of control over society and the economy 
By having the ability to deny people access to financial services and the ability to transact in markets that they deem unacceptable. The cannabis industry has notoriously gotten the short end of the stick in that regard since it first became a legal business at the state level in the United States. Major banks will not allow cannabis businesses to hold accounts with them. Most payment processors will not offer services to them. They are either forced to deal with cash only or very high-priced payment processors that still might cut them off at a moment's notice. Strainly is a company that has serviced this industry since 2016, providing seeds of cannabis strains, growing equipment, plant clones, pollen for breeding, and other services. All of these products, products, by the way, are legal at even a federal level in the United States, but companies offering these products are still subject to financial exclusions. As a result of this, Strainly has pioneered the use of BTC Pay Server as a payment processing solution for vendors in the industry. After a lengthy period of use for their own services, they have decided to open up their integration to facilitate a peer-to-peer marketplace amongst their own users. Leveraging BTC Pay Server on the back end, they are able to provide vendors with a server to register their own non-custodial wallets, plural, for payment processing and open up the use of Bitcoin as a payment mechanism for other participants in the legal cannabis industry. BTC Pay's pull payment system even supports frictionless refund functionality for vendors and customers while simultaneously protecting vendors from chargebacks inherent in the legacy financial system. It also facilitates payments between customers and vendors in a way that does not expose either side's private financial information to the other party. In exchange for operating the infrastructure to facilitate this marketplace, Strainly collects a small fee on each exchange. After initial testing, where this fee was paid in addition to the vendor invoice by the purchaser, they observed that this arrangement created a high degree of friction for buyers on the marketplace, many of whom prior to using it had no experience with Bitcoin. In response, they rearranged the user flow in order to have the vendor pay the marketplace service fee, leaving purchasers the single invoice for vendor cost and shipping fees. This change has led to a huge reduction of friction for end users with no prior experience using Bitcoin. Strainly is currently processing 600 to 800 invoices a month with an 80% settlement rate for created invoices. These kinds of success rates clearly demonstrate that they are doing something right when it comes to making Bitcoin use simple and intuitive for regular people. This case study is the perfect demonstration of how Bitcoin can function as a censorship-resistant payment infrastructure that it was designed to be. The full case study is available for download here, and here is underlined because it's a link. Okay, so the the dope industry. Weed. Gotta put your weed in there, man. <clears throat> has been not only underserved and blacklisted, but basically forgotten about. This is the thing that worries me. Like Washington State, which is where I live currently, it's legal to buy weed. I mean, there's stores all over the place. But every time I walk into one, the first thing that I realize is that they are carrying a shit ton of cash on hand. I can go to call I go to Colorado where it's legal to sell it in stores there too and the same thing that's the first thing on my mind is that I'm sitting in a store that has a massive amount of cash on hand at any given time which makes the store a target 
right? Now, I'm not all fearful, and you know, and I'm like, I, I don't not go into them because of that, but it is in the back of my mind. And every, but if I were an employee at one of these places, I, w- I probably would have a, a healthy respect for just being scared shitless. Because at any given time, you're there for eight hours, 10 hours, depending whatever your shift is, every day, except for maybe, you know, a day off, you know, per week. At any given time, you're a target. You're the guy that actually has to interact with the dude holding a 45 right to your forehead saying, give me all your money. You don't know the combination to the safe. You can tell them that, but they don't care. I mean, you can be dead with them getting all the money, or you can be just as dead with them walking out of the door empty-handed. It doesn't matter. The fact that the federal government allows this shit to play out with their own citizenry is reprehensible. But at least there's people like BTC Pay Server and companies like Strainly who are actually experimenting with how to use this thing, right? And 600 to 800 settled invoices, well, 80% of 600 to 800 invoices per month at settlement is not a bad, not a bad deal. That's not a bad deal at all. Although what surprises me is that they ever thought that it was going to be a good idea to hand over two invoices to the customer and saying, you got to pay both of them. That's just dumb. You always mark, you always put the cost of your operations in the markup price so that the customer only pays one price. They walk in, they see 40 bucks an ounce or whatever it is, and they say yes or no. And then if they say yes, they make one payment. That's it. So I'm not really sure why the hell they went with the other model to begin with, but it looks like they've learned their lesson. And it's good that these people are partnering with people like BTC Pay Server to find all this shit out for us. Now, The United States government holds a lot of Bitcoin. And in fact, their Bitcoin holdings have topped $8 billion. That's billion with a B. And BTC seizing may continue in 2024. This is out of an outfit called CCN.com. And it's written by who? Uh, Giuseppe Chacasolo? Oh, there's no way I can pronounce that. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> the United States government's Bitcoin holdings have surpassed $8 billion, and this number is likely to continue to grow in the coming years. The government has been seizing Bitcoin from criminals and other entities for several years, and this activity may continue in 2024. If the government continues to seize Bitcoin at the same rate that it has in recent years, its holdings could reach $10 billion by the end of 2024. This would make the United States government one of the largest holders of Bitcoin in the world. (laughs) there's not much more to that particular article. Um, I mean, it's actually a longer article than I want to read here, but I thought that that first part is just enough to, for us to remember that the United States government is a massive whale in Bitcoin. I mean, $8 billion worth of Bitcoin is nothing to sneeze at. In fact, that looks like it's uh, right now it's accumulated 215,000 BTC through law enforcement seizures since the year 2020. Now, here's what I find the most fascinating. They haven't auctioned it yet. They've, um, the United States Marshal Service are the people, that's the department in the Department of Justice that uh, does the seizures, and they're the ones that are the, the BTC custodians. 
it's the marshal's service Bitcoin as a custody for the United States government. They're also the ones that organize the auctions, like the Silk Road coins that got sold in Peter Thiel. That's where he bought all his Bitcoin. <clears throat> but the Marshall Service hasn't run a Bitcoin auction in a long time. And usually they try to beat us over the head with that shit. They really do. Like, I remember a couple, you know, like over the, during the times that the Marshall Service were making auctions on Bitcoin, they were flashing every, it was almost every single time that we got a lift in price on Bitcoin in U.S. dollar terms, the Marshall Service would release a press release saying that they were preparing the auction. They were going to sell a shit ton of BTC and right on cue, the price would come down. And then they'd stay silent. Price would rise back up. And then another press release, we're getting closer. We're getting closer to the BTC auction. And I haven't heard a peep out of these guys in like well over a year. I have heard jack shit, jack shit about them auctioning anything. No plans, no nothing. It's like they're silent. I wonder. I wonder if this will be the time that the Marshall Service turns over the coins to the United States Treasury and, and they just start keeping it on their books. I don't know. Or the Federal Reserve. They're the, they're the ones that actually keeps the books. But in either event, well, I, I, I guess they would turn it over to the Treasury. When you pay the IRS, you're actually not paying the IRS. You're, you make the check out to the United States Department of Treasury. So they're probably the ones that would end up with the coins. But it would be it's going to be interesting to see because they hold 215,000 BTC. If they market sell all of them all at once, it's going to be a brutal, this is going to be a brutal downturn. But they haven't done it. I wonder if they will. I really do. I wonder if they will. All right, where are we at? BTC pay server 1.12.0 under the hood updates, point of sale improvements and bolt card issuance. At scale, this is directly from their blog. We are excited to announce the latest release of BTC Pay Server version 1.12.0. This release brings several important backend changes, solidifies structure for the future, introduces several new features, improvements, and bug fixes. So, there's an upgrade to .NET 8 that they've been that they've got in this one. Uh, there's breaking changes for some plugins. Uh, they're ending support for post post Gresquel, which isn't I never can't pronounce it right. Uh, it's a C, uh, SQL eleven uh, post G R E SQL eleven. Uh, it's reached its end of life status, so they're going to do away with that. But here's the new features: the point of sale improvements. Based on extensive research and feedback, we are continuously receiving from people around the world onboarding retailers. We're bringing several important UX UI enhancements to this release. We've added the ability to add up amounts through and plus functionality, making it easier to calculate the total and clear out wrongly added amounts. Cashiers can now see transaction histories of the point of sale app ensuring easier invoice troubleshooting and refunding for users with permission to do so. We also improved error messaging on the checkout when using NFC cards and optimized receipt printing. In case of too many categories in the POS cart view, categories are now scrollable, starting 
Uh, starting 1.12.0 categories and filters can now be hidden from the main view, but they're on by default if you're using categories. Uh, there's item. There's also an item in it editor, but this is the one that I really, really excited about. Generate bolt cards at scale through BTC Pay directly. Inspired by the success of circular economies using BTC Pay on physical POS devices and NFC cards, that's the important part, the NFC cards, we've added direct integration of Bolt Card into our pull payment system, allowing anyone to issue physical NFC cards. We demonstrated the setup during our BTC Pay Day in Tokyo and replicated it during the Afro Bitcoin Conference for Merchants. Quite simply, any BTC Pay user now has the ability to not only generate NFC cards for spending for their local economies and merchants, but also have an easy way to do that at scale thanks to our BTC Pay Vault. It only takes a few seconds. So the end users can do the following. Check card balance by scanning a QR code. They can also top up the balance. There are several conditions that have to be met for this feature. The pull payment is created with automatically approved claims. The currency of the pull payment is in SATs or BTC. The automated lightning sender or the payout processor of the store is configured. BTC Pay Server Vault 2.0.8 or more is installed. A smart card reader such as this and this one, and those are both links. An empty NT, or sorry, NTAG 424 NFC compliant card. When those conditions are fulfilled, the pull payment will have two links. Hold on. The pull payment will have two links, set up bolt card and reset bolt card appearing. If you click set up bolt card, BTC pay server will connect to the BTC BTC pay server vault, which will connect to your local smart card reader. You can then just tap the card on the smart card reader. That's it. The card is set up. This card can then be used to pay by tapping on a merchant's terminal. Note that the merchant needs an Android phone with NFC enabled and Google Chrome or a dedicated device such as Bitcoin Eyes. And Bitcoin Eyes here is at a link. It's a geyser.fund forward slash project forward slash Bitcoin Eyes POS. So if you want to go to it, we're still working on improving the UX around this feature and we'll soon have better documentation and video tutorials. If you're a local ambassador onboarding merchants waiting to replicate this setup, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you on how we can improve it. And then there's several other things that they've added to it. It's rather a long, it's rather a long uh, blog post, but it's the bolt card thing. So check it out. Like, let's say, Let's say that I've got everything that I need to have and I rent a stall over at, I don't know, Pike Place uh, in Seattle, which is a huge, you know, basically massive ongoing farmer's market. And like, you know, you rent a stall and that's if you can afford it because I'm sure that they're really pricey. But I could be able to generate Bitcoin loaded, lightning enabled NFC cards right from my table for them to either be able to use back at my table or to any of the other merchants at Pike Place that figure out that the future is leaving them behind and they need to get the fuck on board. Being able to generate these cards on the fly is a huge user experience boost. Also, think of it this way. Let's say I've got a brick and mortar store. 
That's my reward system. You don't get points. You don't get points. I'm not going to do any of that point that point crap because then I got to go find a third party vendor to do all that shit. When basically what I can do is I can say, hey, every time that you come in, give me your NFC card and I will load it with like, I don't know, 100 Satoshis. I'll add it to your balance for every coffee that you buy. And you can use the same NFC card to actually purchase the coffee with. So not only is it the payment card, it can be a rewards card all at the same time. And it's the same damn card. The user experience, the, I can't even imagine what kind of creative individuals are going to come up with what kind of creative ideas that take this and turbocharge it. This is quite possibly one of the biggest enhancements to BTC, BTC Pay Server in its history. And I've been following this project for a very long time. Since its inception, in fact. So, this is freaking awesome. This is, I I just, I'm really excited about that. It basically makes me even more interested in BTC Pay Server than I already was. Now, to finish us off, we've got GitAlby. And they have a blog as well. And they made an announcement on December the 18th, which I missed. I think I missed it. And that is introducing the Liquid Network to the Albi browser extension. If I've mentioned it before, and it's like you're just screaming at the, you know, into your headphones saying you've already covered this shit. If I have, and I'm doing it again, I'm sorry, but I know that if I did, I certainly did not do it at this scale. Let's read this blog post from GitAlbi. The recent surge in on-chain Bitcoin transaction fees, partly fueled by the controversial inscriptions, is sparking conversations about Bitcoin second layers and sidechains. High fees drive more adoption into the Lightning Network, but there's also a growing interest in utilizing other available protocols. And Albi is here today to push forward Lightning interoperability with other Bitcoin ecosystems, and one of them is the Liquid Network. Many Albi users enjoy using Noster on the web safely, storing their private keys locally in the browser extension. (laughs) God knows I do. The introduction of Master Key gave the Albi extension a superpower of having one identity secured by one 12-word recovery phrase that can be used on Noster, Liquid Network, the Bitcoin base layer, and as login with Lightning Key. Sorry, as, as a login with Lightning which I have also used, and it's incredible. Keys to those protocols are derived from your master key, and they never leave your local machine, even if you use a web app. The master key is not strictly tied to the Lightning wallet you use in the Albi extension, so you can use the same Noster or Liquid identity on many different Lightning wallets connected to the extension. And if you already have the master key, simply use 12-word recovery phrase to import it into the extension. The extension exposes the signing functionality, Noster, Liquid, Bitcoin on-chain, and Lightning through the simple use of APIs. Albi remains primarily a Lightning-focused browser extension, continuously committed to safeguarding your funds and keys in the vast and wild landscape of the web. While Albi is not becoming a Liquid native wallet with full-fledged support, it does give you a Liquid address ready to be used on any website. 
Today, you can already use Liquid with Albi on Bolts Exchange. However, there's currently no proper Liquid Web wallet that you can use to maintain your funds, see your addresses, assets, or transactions. Lewisinger prepared a Liquid Web wallet to demo the signing functionality. To see the Liquid address, simply connect with the Albi extension and sign a website request to read your address. In the same way, you will sign transaction requests whenever you wish to send funds out of your Liquid wallet. Albi is a proud member of the Liquid Federation, and as such, we encourage all sorts of builders, developers, and designers to enter this still unexplored terrain of Liquid on the web. We're happy to announce a 2.1 million Satoshi, which right now is roughly around 900 bucks, bounty, in collaboration with Blockstream for building a liquid web wallet that can be used with Albi. It can be a new wallet or it can be or it can be built upon Lewisinger's web wallet, which is open source. Submitted wallets should be a fully functioning liquid network wallet, allowing you to manage both Bitcoin and tokens issued on Liquid and should be characterized with smooth user experience that can be easily used by a variety of users. To find out more details, visit our bounties page where you can also view other active challenges. We hope this inspires more developers to join the call for a new web wallet we haven't seen today in the ecosystem at Albi. We can't wait to experience what the future holds at the intersection of Lightning Network liquid and potentially other Bitcoin layers that are yet to come. Okay. Um, yeah. Kid warp. I don't know if they use slip because I don't know what slip is and that's okay. I'm not a programmer. I'm, I'm not a backend engineer. I don't feel bad by not knowing what the hell slip is. It's okay. I don't feel bad, but I will say this and I don't use liquid. Okay. But I know that there's a lot of liquid haters out there. I get it. And I really can't say whether or not liquid is something that I don't like or I do like because I don't use it. I am going to take the safe road and say that I kind of don't like it right now. I have yet to see them actually stumble and like, you know, I don't know, act like a ripple or act like Solana or act like Duquan, or Terra Labs, or whatever. I haven't seen them do that. That gives me hope for the future. However, I've been burned in this space so many times, and I'm not talking about losing money. That I've been able to actually, you know, not experience because I got out of shit coinery almost as, as quick as I got into it. Like within months, I was like, I'm done. I was like, <laughs> I held some doge. I don't want it. I get rid of it. I, I got rid of everything. Except for, <clears throat> except for uh, airdrops. I'm sure that my old ledger address has got more airdrops than I care to even think of. I don't care. I want nothing to do with it. But with all that said, the ability, if, if what I'm thinking is right, that I can take my Albi key <clears throat> and I can log into the Liquid Network as easily as I log into a Nostra client and then interact with my Satoshis in my Lightning wallet directly with the Liquid Network, then something that I used to think about when I first got into this game in 2015 becomes true. There was a time 
at the early beginnings of this, even after I stopped shitcoining, that I was thinking about how side chains would interact with each other. And I was doing it in a way that was more of a bio, from a biological lens, if you will, because that's sort of, you know, got a degree in cell molecular biology. So I, I think about biology and cell function all the time. I, I can't stop. It's fascinating. But be that as it may, I was thinking that all these different tokens, all these different coins would have a fundamentally positive effect and I was wrong. I got burned. I got burned like a son of a bitch because all of those tokens turned out to be just a bunch of scammers. There was almost none of them that were like just really trying to say, look, we can off- help offload some of this, you know, some of the traffic on the Bitcoin main chain, do the things that you need to do with it over here on our chain, and then come back to Bitcoin main chain. And almost 95% of that or 99% of that ecosystem basically went full shitcoin and then offering basically unregistered securities. So I got burned thinking that way. Now, when Liquid came out, I started thinking maybe, just maybe, this will be one of the people that don't offer unregistered securities, that don't try to do the things that Brad Garlinghouse and and his, you know, ilk have tried to do. I'm not even really a big fan of David Chom because of that, the the guy behind Chomian and eCash or the idea behind Chomian and eCash, he did grin as a token. Basically it was an unregistered security and everybody was like, Oh, grin's going to eat Bitcoin's lunch. And I'm like, no. And they're like, don't you know who David Chom is? And I'm like, yes, I know exactly who David Chom is. He's a fucking shit coiner is who he is. It doesn't matter what he was. It's who he is now. And I haven't heard about grin since trace Mayer started passing around slips of paper at a conference that said grin is the next Bitcoin. And then after that, what happened to trace Mayer? Disappeared. Disappeared. Half of me wants to think he did that shit on purpose because he just wanted to go behind the scenes and that he needed a credible exit out of the space. So he decided to make everybody think he was a shit coiner because that's what everybody thought. They were like, God dang, Trace. And he was one of, he was the first Bitcoin podcast that I ever listened to in the space was uh, the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Still a good podcast. He doesn't do it anymore, I don't think. But he had a lot of episodes and it really grounded me in what this shit was all about. All that said, I'm going to be hopefully optimistic about what Git Albi is doing here with Liquid. That doesn't mean to ape in, but it does mean that if you have some time on your hands, you may want to go look at this quote unquote interoperability so that we, you and me, can all discover together just how interoperable it really is. Liquid may be another second layer. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm tired of getting burned in the space. But that's going to do it for the second part of the show. And that's going to do it for the whole damn show because my voice is about to give out and I got to go do some other stuff. So. Thank you for joining me for the guys over there in Zapstream. I love you all. Thank you for joining me. At one point or another, uh, Christmas is coming up and I'm probably going to slow down a little bit, but I'm going to try to bring you episodes for the rest of at least this week 
And I'm because usually I take like three weeks off and, you know, honestly, even myself, I'm actually looking at the pod Bitcoin podcast that I listen to and everybody's ramping down and I'm like dying for, I'm dying for news. So if I'm the only one left standing, then I'll be happy to serve. And I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.